Good morning, everybody. That'll be the last time for a little while that I'll, I'll have the chance to be able to say that to you guys from the pulpit anyway with uh, my sabbatical starting uh, May 1st, beginning of next week. So, um, so I treasure this opportunity this morning to preach uh, before a period of, of rest and uh, restoration my family will be seeking between now and the end of August. Um, uh, one of the things I'd love to ask, I, I know that it can almost sound cliche, it's unfortunate that sometimes the most important things about life and about our walk with Jesus become that way, is please pray for us. I would, I would love to just ask for you to commit to pray for my family and myself. Um, I think a couple of specific ways that I am aware um, of our need for that. Uh, for myself, I tend to be an over-planner, um, and especially when it comes to what I hope for this set-apart time to be for me and for my soul and for my walk with Jesus. I think I've tried to cram and fit a lot in because I want to come back in a place where I've really allowed for Jesus to, to, to reinvigorate my soul. So finding the balance between a, creating a different rhythm of life and yet availing myself to all that Jesus wants to do, that'd be one way to pray. Just wisdom and how to steward the time, in short, is what I'm asking. And then for my family, I'm out there, you know that it's easier uh, to, to, um, to isolate. And, uh, and for you extroverts out there, you know that that can be extremely painful. So my wife's an extrovert. And so you can be praying for her and for our family that we strike that balance well uh, also. Um, that whereas, you know, our most important... ...much over the next four months, that we make sure that we find that place where we're um, in fellowship with God's people. We have some other churches that we'll be attending during that time. About two months of our time, we'll be out in California, which is where Leah's family is. So we'll be staying with them, and there's a solid church that we've always connected with well when, when we've been out there. She has family out there. So that part will be good for her. But be praying for her and for us in both those ways, and I really appreciate that. Um, we've been, if, if this is for whatever reason new to you, uh, we've been talking about this over the past several months, and there's an email maybe a month or a month and a half ago that was sent out that kind of outlined um, the, the more spiritual hopes that I have for the sabbatical, and as I'll allude to during announcements today, there'll be some more practical uh, info coming forward for you guys in terms of what things will look like here in that time um, during the sabbatical period. So it, it's kind of cool for me to be able to finish... Um, this series of Matthew, we've, Gospel of Matthew, we've been in for the last two years or so. Um, and that, that was, I mean, the timing worked out well, but it wasn't planned um, that this would be my last Sunday here and also the finish of the Gospel of Matthew. So that's just kind of cool and fun for me to finish this series. We're going to be in a well-known passage, just five verses, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, which is famously known, and probably you've got a little subtitle in your Bible, The Great Commission as the Great Commission, Jesus' ascending of the disciples. But we're going to look more broadly as, as to what it means to be a disciple and how to make disciples today. Um, so before we explore that in detail, let's read together those five verses. Matthew 28. And welcome to those. Do we even have our live stream up today? I'm just, oh, there it is, up there. I know that there are a lot of people who are not feeling well and are sick and at home today, so... Welcome, and hope you guys feel better soon. That would be my, my family as well, actually. Hi, guys. <laughs> Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, would you help these words to sink in differently and more meaningfully, perhaps, than they have before for us? Maybe very familiar to some of us here. Maybe we've never heard them before. In either case, Holy Spirit, work in such a way that you'd apply these truths to our heart and bring about a a harvest of righteousness and of faith and of obedience from this time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled the sermon for today, Jesus' Playbook for Being and Making Disciples. Simple and straightforward. If you extract from that where we're going, basically we want to talk today about how to be a disciple, that's your journey, and how to make disciples. That's the great commission to be involved with seeing other people come to know, people come to know and grow in Christ. So first, how to be a disciple. I'm going to, by the end of this first portion, try to define it with you. And I think the definition is a good and helpful one, probably worth writing down or taking a, a screenshot of or um, even looking on our website under the discipleship section because it, the gist of it's there too. But before we get to trying to define what it means to be a disciple, let's see it in action. Because we have three little vignettes in the whole of Matthew 28 where we actually get to see some recurring patterns and marks of what it means to be a disciple. First, we see it in the women, Jesus' female followers and their interactions with the angel at the tomb. Then we see it with the women and their interactions with Jesus himself who shows up on the scene. And then finally, we see it with uh, the disciples, the male disciples and Jesus at the end of the chapter in our passage for today. So let's look and break down each to begin with in story form to see discipleship in action and then we'll kind of extrapolate from that some different marks of and the process of discipleship. So first in verses 1 through 8, we're backing up a little bit in Matthew 28 for context, right? In verses 1 through 8, a couple weeks ago, we noted that the women were really the lone followers of Jesus who were on the scene at the crucifixion and at the tomb and even here at the resurrection um, throughout the last chapter or two, right? They, they actually stay at the grave, at the tomb, beyond Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb it was, when he leaves. They're still there. They only leave because the Sabbath is about to begin, and so they're being obedient to the law. And then in verse 1 of chapter 28, we read, towards, towards the dawn, right at daybreak, they're back at the tomb. They went to the tomb to see the tomb, it says. Okay, so they're back. What do we see here then at the beginning of this scene where they're about to interact with the the angels? Well, first of all, we see them drawing near to Jesus. That's a facet of discipleship, of being a disciple. Even if they still expected him to be in the grave and were largely surprised by finding an empty tomb, they are going to see Jesus, to be near their friend, their rabbi, and soon to be, they discover their Lord. As they do this, as they draw near to Jesus, they encounter God's revelation in the form of this angel showing up on the scene and communicating God's word to them, saying, he's not here, he is risen. 
So they draw near to see Jesus, to see the tomb. They encounter the revelation of God through these angels, and they respond with fear and joy. Probably a fear more of awe and reverence uh, than the wrong kinds of fear we don't want to fall into the trap of as Christians. And so appropriately, we could label that as worship. Now, if you move on into the next scene, verses 9 and 10, as a result, once again, of them having drawn near to Jesus, being in this place, close to where he was, they not only encounter the angel, but they encounter Jesus himself. Jesus shows up. He meets them where they are. And we're told they worship him. And then in response to being there in his presence, worshiping him, Jesus offers more revelation. And he actually gives them the instruction to announce to the world, starting with his disciples, I am risen. And we see that they respond. They respond in obedience. They go and they tell the disciples. The disciples were not very good listeners. They didn't believe them at first. But they do exactly what Jesus instructs them to do. Then we have a third vignette. And that is the disciples and Jesus. We learned some more about what they were doing and what was going on behind the scenes in the other Gospels. Here, most of what we know ever since the Garden of Gethsemane is in verses 16 to 18. What we know is that the disciples first encountered the message that Jesus has risen from the women who came back from the tomb and shared this with them. They, they didn't believe them, so Jesus then shows up on the scene. And I would say graciously so, because in this instance, as disciples, they were not seeking him. They were hiding behind a closed and locked door out of fear of the Jews. But he seeks them out, and he reveals himself to them, and he gives them the instruction to go to Galilee, their hometown, where they first met him, where they grew up, and he will meet them there. And, when they, and they respond in obedience. They go. And when they go to Galilee, they encounter Jesus again. Right. So they take that step of faith. They go to Galilee. They encounter Jesus again. And their response is interesting. Because as we read this morning, some of them worship. And yet some of them doubt. But in either case, it puts them in a position to receive more revelation for Jesus to reveal more truth to them in the form of the Great Commission and the sending that we see. Okay, so those are, that's discipleship in action, what it means to be a disciple as we see it in the real stories and lives of the, the male and female disciples. What are some of the patterns at play? Well, first of all, let's just talk briefly about the marks of discipleship that we see at least from these passages. Number one, we see obedience. In these instances anyway, whenever revelation was given, the disciples responded in obedience, at least eventually. We know it took the male disciples a little bit longer to get up to speed. We also see worship in at least three different instances. If we understand that's what the women were doing when they encountered the revelation of God through the angel, they are filled with joy and fear. Then they meet Jesus and they worship him. Then the disciples go to Galilee and they encounter Jesus and some of them worship. Worship is a mark of discipleship. And this one might be a little bit more kind of headcock, like tilt, like really? Doubt. Doubt seems to be a recurring theme and experience in the life of disciples, a mark of discipleship. It's not unique to this passage. When you layer on the other gospels, we know that um, some doubted when the women first reported the events of the empty tomb to them. We know Thomas Doubted at first in the scene in John chapter 20. Doubt is a legitimate part of the experience of discipleship. The interesting thing is this word for doubt is kind of unique in the Gospels. It's used one other time in Matthew. And that is in Matthew 14, the walking on water. 
where Jesus walks on water and Peter's like, that's pretty cool. And if he can do it, I can in his strength. So he gets out of the boat, he walks on the water, he ends up sinking, kind of loses focus, and Jesus says to him, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Same word, only other place it's used. I bring that up to say that in both scenes, the circumstances were kind of unusual and a bit overwhelming. Might be an understatement for the disciples. And a lot of times, isn't that how it works for us as Christians? It's not that we don't believe in Jesus. We stop believing wholesale altogether. We believe, but the circumstances around us are temporarily bigger than he is. And so we find doubt creeping in, even when we're standing face to face with him, proverbially speaking, but literally for the disciples. So we see doubt as a part of the discipleship journey, though I will add that in their doubt, they still moved toward him, and they still encountered more revelation from him. And then we see finally risk. That's not a word that's brought up explicitly in this passage, but it's certainly implied. We might also call risk faith. That might be a more familiar biblical term or even church term. Risk and faith are evident here in this scene. First, the disciples come out from their locked closet, right? They do encounter the risen Jesus, yes, but it's still a risk because they know that they are gonna be at odds with all the religious elite, all the religious leaders of their day. So they come out of hiding It's a risk and takes faith for them to go to Galilee because it's not like they were following on Jesus' heels. He just disappears and they're supposed to go and meet him somewhere in Galilee. So the circumstances surrounding all these events were were, were pretty overwhelming and pretty discombobulating, no doubt. But they still obeyed. And as a result, they encounter more of Jesus, more revelation of his truth. So those are some of the marks of discipleship. What about the pattern of discipleship? This is where it starts to get real practical. This is where we're talking about the process of what it means to be a disciple that we go through over and over again. So this is helpful. It'll be some overlap with some of the things we just said, but put in some different words. The process of discipleship, as we see it here and elsewhere, always starts with God initiating. He reveals himself to us. All right? He invites us to come and see. He invites us to seek him. Over and over again, God reveals something of himself. We read about that in the word. We experience that personally. It starts with Jesus at the beginning of the gospels. He says to the disciples, come and see. He invites them to come and see. And they do. And then they they seek more of Jesus. They seek to know the truth. And Jesus reveals more of himself. And graciously, he even sometimes comes to them when they're not seeking him. Parable of the lost sheep. Or even back in Genesis, where after Adam and Eve sinned, God graciously didn't wait for them to come and find him. They went and hid. That's interesting. Another instance of hiding, where God comes to those who are hiding and graciously reveals himself to them. It always starts with God revealing himself. With that revelation always comes a response, always, on your part, in your heart. As you encounter some truth that God has made known to you about himself, you're always responding in your heart in one form or another. You're either receiving what he has showed you or you're rejecting what he has showed you. You're either doubting or worshiping. You're either experiencing conviction or hardening your heart towards that thing that he's showed you. You're either filled with joy or it causes an anxiety and a worry and a fear in you. With revelation always comes a response And that response is then ultimately reflected, seen 
by the world around us through our actions or our inactions. It could be in the form of obedience or disobedience or no obedience. Even no response is a response, right, of rejecting something that God has revealed to us about himself. It may take the shape of repenting, turning from our sin and to God and experiencing change. It may look like staying the same. It may be going to tell others or God has revealed or it may mean keeping it to ourselves. but we're always reflecting something about that response to what God has revealed. And so this is the pattern of discipleship that we see and experience over and over again. God reveals something about himself to us. We respond in one form or another, positively or negatively, and that is reflected to the world around us in our actions or inaction. That pattern happens over and over again. At Terra, we've talked about this as being more like the shape of a spiral, the discipleship spiral, than a linear process that has a definitive art, uh, start and end point, or where you're always moving positively in one direction. And so at this point, I, could, I would like to offer for us a working definition of what it means to be a disciple. So bear with me, it's wordy, but I think it, it, it crams in all the necessary ingredients. It'll be on the screen behind me too, if that's easier for you to follow along. So, Here's a working definition for discipleship. Disciples are people who continually allow the gospel to inform their lives and mature them into his image through the repeated process of faithfully seeking and finding the things that God reveals, responding to them, and reflecting that to others. Rinse and repeat. That is the process of discipleship. I want to share a personal example of this from my own life um, that may help to kind of clarify how it's worked, at least for me. Over the past few years, um, as I think most of us can relate to, as you get older in life and you take on more responsibility, it just you find the challenges don't end. And in fact, things get harder. And so over the past few years, I've experienced some challenges that have put my faith to the test. I've not always come through with flying colors. I have faced many shortcomings that has produced some anxiety over inadequacy and even a corresponding, I think, dryness in my walk with Jesus, my relationship with Jesus at times. Over the course of the same past few years, I received a couple of different, uh, multiple invites, I should say, from a couple of different friends, brothers in ministry outside of Terranova Church who were inviting me to this men's weekend um, and uh, they were persistent and finally I relented uh, and because I just knew I needed something to confront these pain points, these blockages in my walk with Jesus. And so I went. And, I, you know, and upon showing up, and I won't go into great detail here, but you knew that they meant business. This was not one of those events which you could kind of fade away to the background and just sit in a large audience and listen to a lot of teaching and intellectually stimulate yourself but not be challenged and just kind of go away and forget about it. It was not like that. It was more like one of those experiences where once, you're, once I was there, I was like, what did I get myself into? There were a lot of risks that we were pushed to take. A lot of risks to walk in the light with Jesus and others emotionally and through action of different kinds. The other thing about what I went into this weekend with was an awareness Um, that there were some unhealthy places where I was turning to comfort in my life other than Jesus. Things that from the outside 
were good in and of themselves, um, but that I was relying upon in a way that I started to discern and understood, this isn't healthy. And so I kind of went into the weekend thinking, this is the idol, the idol of comfort that needs to be exposed and that God's going to deal with. And I wasn't entirely wrong. But through being in an environment where I had to press in and risk more than I had before, some new things began to kind of be revealed. I began to recognize in myself that there were some false identities that I was living out of. To use biblical language, the old man that I was still clinging to as opposed to the new creation in Christ. False identities like the judge. A lot of you know what I mean by that. The inner critic. The one who is the arbiter of whether you are, in this case, whether I was performing on a level to be worthy of God's approval and acceptance. And one of the questions that was asked was, why are you hanging on to this? To this inner judge, this inner critic? And it's a good question. Why do we ever hang on to the old man? Why do we ever hang on to sin? I don't know. But I I had to think about it, and one of the things I realized was that This inner judge, this false self, held the promise, albeit an empty one, of vindicating me. If I could just live up to the subjective standard that I had set for myself. The problem is, most of the time, I fail him. And eventually what ended up up happening is it's easier for me just to numb myself to the pain of feeling like a constant failure, constantly inadequate, than it is to remain exposed to that. But when you turn to the wrong kinds, when I was turning to the wrong kinds of comfort, that had the practical effect of beginning to numb myself in my heart towards Jesus, even others. So comfort, the wrong kinds, ended up becoming a secondary thing. Not unimportant, but it wasn't the primary thing. Additionally, a couple of the things that were revealed through that weekend was this question of what cost is this coming at to you? Continuing on to hold on to this false self of the judge, this inner critic. And for me, it was peace and also intimacy with God and others. All right, I was constantly seeking to prove myself as adequate to this inner critic, but I couldn't be successful in that, so there's no peace in that. It's just anxiety. And so, To try to numb that, I would turn to comfort. But the practical effect of that is when when I preoccupy myself with finding comfort in things outside of Jesus, I'm not present with those around me. And I'm not present with God. The other thing that I came away from that weekend with a deeper understanding of is that there's nothing noble about being my own inner critic and judge. Even if that appears to mean that there's a high standard that I'm holding myself to. And honestly, that standard still falls far short of God's standard for me. What I realized is that functionally what I was doing, as ridiculous as it sounds, is trying to take Jesus' place on the cross. Functionally, that's what I was doing. Instead of living in the freedom of God's pronouncement, you are loved, Daniel, you are accepted, you are approved because of the finished work of what my son Jesus has already done for you and accomplished on the cross. Instead, I was for all intents and purposes, rejecting what Jesus had done for me and that message of acceptance, and I was seeking to find it on my own terms. So what does this have to do with what it means to be a disciple? Well, it's an example of the discipleship spiral. 
I went into that weekend understanding already about myself. I was a little bit numb. I was a little bit dry in my walk with Jesus. I had a sense of inadequacy. I was turning too much to the wrong kinds of comfort. And I came out of it not with a completely different understanding, like I was in the wrong ballpark, but I came out with it with a more gospel-informed understanding. That being that my judge is in heaven, not inside of me. And that his standard is actually far loftier than my own, but at the same time, he has already judged all of my sins, all of my failings, all of my inadequacies and shortcomings on the cross so that I'm always approved, always accepted before him, even in the moments when I feel or act inadequate or incompetent. And that's the discipleship spiral. Why? Because it's not going to be the last time I have to encounter that truth in my life. I'm going to need to be confronted with those truths. And that will happen as I continue to seek him and press into him. God will continue faithfully to be able to reveal more truth that will sink in more deeply and help conform me more and more into the image of his son. Now, it doesn't have to be a men's weekend, some intensive short-term context, mountaintop flurry of a spiritual experience. Not at all. I've experienced discipleship and this process working out in my own daily devotional times in the word. I've experienced it in the context of tribes, our small groups here at Terranova, in car rides with my wife, even my son driving him to school and conversations we have. I've experienced it in taking the risk of confessing my sin to a trusted brother. I've experienced it in taking the risk of sharing my faith and witnessing to what God has done in my life to somebody who needs Christ and doesn't know him yet. But the process of discipleship always starts with seeking Jesus, and that implies risk, right? And then when we seek him, we encounter truth, that's his revelation, we respond to that truth, and then we reflect that in some kind of obedience, which, obedience, which also implies risk. That's how we be a disciple. We seek God, we respond to what he's revealed to us, and then we reflect that to the world around us. And then it happens over and over again. But Jesus also shows us here not only how to be, but how to make disciples. Not just to be content with growing in him and knowing him behind closed doors in isolation, but also being a part of this great commission to go and make disciples. So how do we do that? Well, this comes out of Jesus' words in verses 18 to 20. But first, just a couple of observations of some other things that I see going on here that I just don't wanna, I wanna make sure we don't miss. They're are pretty important. And the big one is this. Jesus has his disciples return to Galilee. Jerusalem was the epicenter of the Jewish faith and religion. Why didn't he stay there? Why didn't they stay there? But instead he says, yeah, I'm gonna be in Galilee where we first met, your hometown, your familiar territory. Go back and I will meet you there. Why? A few reasons, I think. Number one, coming to believe in Jesus, like that he really did live, he was perfect, fully God, fully man, in his death, and his burial, and his resurrection, that's not the end of the story. We don't want to make that mistake. It actually marks a new beginning. Because Jesus is alive, resurrected now, so too the disciples have that new resurrection life within them. Jesus is marking a new beginning going back to where it all started. He also is taking them back to their hometown and this is where he releases them to begin their mission. Right? Amongst their own 
people, their own family and friends and neighbors who knew them before and know them now. I think it's symbolic of the fact that when God calls us to mission, he calls us to start at ground zero. And then thirdly, when they meet Jesus initially, on those first days for many of them where they're fishing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, at that point, he was just a rabbi. He was just their teacher. He was just somebody who is preaching and proclaiming faith in this thing, the kingdom of God. But now that they are back to this same spot with the resurrected Jesus, they see things completely differently. He's no longer just the rabbi and teacher pointing to the kingdom of God. He is now the object of their faith. What's your ground zero? What's the place and the people to whom, at a bare minimum, God has called you to make disciples? And then secondly, Is Jesus, for you, just a pointer to a good ethic to live by, a good teacher? Or is he the object and end of your faith in and of himself? Those are some of the questions that I think the Great Commission passage here asks of us this morning. All right, but how do we make disciples? First of all, it's important to see what the imperative is here. That's just a word that means the command, the verb of command. What is Jesus actually calling us to do here? And the imperative is make disciples. The imperative isn't go, which sometimes it often is thought to be the, the main instruction or command of the Great Commission. But if it's make disciples, then what that means is that foreign missions is not the only or even the primary way in which God is calling us to go about making disciples. Instead, go here, when he says go therefore and make disciples, that's actually a participle. That could actually be translated as you are going, make disciples. Big difference, right? This then answers the question of when and where we make disciples. We make disciples as we are going. In other words, as you are going about your everyday life, make disciples. The temptation for us can be to look at disciple-making as something that's meant for a set-apart time, compartmentalized to, you know, 15 minutes before bedtime with our kids, or the Terra Kids program downstairs, or our NAOS Terra Youth program, or tribes, or redemption groups, or one of our more formal structured ministries here at Terra Nova. But these are not the only, maybe I could even say not even the best ways necessarily to make disciples. Because disciple making, based upon what Jesus is saying here, is more of a mindset in which you look at every task, every activity, and the circumstances around you as opportunities to make disciples of the people that God has put in your life by pointing them to how he's at work in their lives and in the world. And this is not a New Testament thing. This isn't like Jesus is presenting something novel for the first time. I think of the Shema. It's the, the, the well-known and beloved prayer amongst Jewish people and amongst Christians today from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Then Moses goes on to say this. Doesn't this sound like what it means that as you are going, make disciples? He goes on to say, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them on you as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontlets on your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's pervasive. That's discipleship Moses is talking about and it's just pervasive. So disciple making is a mindset that we take into everyday life. As you are going, make disciples. This can happen by asking each other what God sightings we've had today around the dinner table. It can happen when something doesn't go as planned and we come alongside that person and encourage them and to the effect that God is still good, can be trusted, and we pray for them. It can happen when you're out in nature and you see something you can point to as evidence of a benevolent and good God. It can happen when a stranger unexpectedly opens up to you and is vulnerable and you offer to pray for them, maybe even share the hope in Christ that you have with them. Every moment of our lives around others is pregnant with the opportunity as you are going, make disciples. But what does disciple-making include? Is disciple-making evangelism? Sharing our faith with people who don't yet know Christ? Is disciple-making helping Christians to grow in their faith? Yes. It's a both-and, as Jesus unpacks for us here in the Great Commission. Because he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the, import, the importance of these two participles here is in the order in which they are given. Baptism and then teaching. See, the implication of baptism is the evangelistic work of disciple-making, sharing the gospel in word and deed with those who have not yet accepted it. I know that the church has developed some great tools over the millennia, uh, catechisms and classes and trainings to make sure that people know what they're supposed to believe before they are baptized. I think in our baptism document, we actually cite, it's either Tertullian or Origen, two church fathers, who said, and your you know, baptism candidate must go through this three-year program and process of understanding all these facets of the Christian faith to make sure that they understand. And there's something in that, of course, that in principle is important that we're not willy-nilly baptizing people who don't yet understand Jesus and the gospel. However, based upon what Jesus is saying here and what we see in its simplicity in the New Testament, baptism was always meant to be the entry point for a process of following Jesus that's never complete until eternity. So by baptism, Jesus here is talking about new disciples the evangelistic part of what it means to make disciples. But then he talks about teaching. And the implication when he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, is training up those who are already in Christ so that they become more like him. And the way in which that is done is through formally and informally engaging one another in the word of God. That may happen on a Sunday morning as you hear preaching or in Bible studies you're a part of but it also may happen in the more organic moments of life, teachable moments, reflecting on situations that went a certain way after the fact and applying truth to them, or facing trials and dilemma with each other and searching God's word for wisdom and how to approach those things. That also can be teaching and helping us to grow in our relationship with Jesus. So Jesus gives us this great commission here 
to make both more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. That, that's our mission statement at Terra Nova Church and for many churches. We exist to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. There's one other thing here that's implied about making disciples, at least in the Great Commission, and that is that disciple-making is a supernatural work. We can't do it alone. We were never meant to do it alone. You can't do it in your own strength, either personally grow or lead other people to faith and growth in their own relationship. It has to be a supernatural work of God. Two reasons why I say this. Verse 18, Jesus says, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. This means at least a couple of things. One, it means there is no other authority. So as we disciple others, we better be sure that we're not discipling them into our own ideas because there is only one authority, and that's Jesus Christ and the revealed word of God. But it also indicates that authority accompanies those who are in Christ and ministering in his name because Jesus has given us his authority. Ways in which we know that First of all, we have authority over the spiritual realm because Jesus rules over Satan. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And it's this, it's, it's actually a hard teaching because we know that there are times in which we experience pain and it feels like we are being hurt. But I think the principle is very simple, similar to what we talked about last week, if you were here, when I was giving some of the promises that we need to lean into, when Jesus says in Matthew 10, not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the Father, and you are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, Jesus here, in the Great Commission, giving his authority to his followers, and with what he said in Luke chapter 10, he's reassuring them, the enemy cannot touch you apart from your Father and he is good. So you have authority over the spiritual realm because Jesus rules over Satan. But in a sense, you have authority over the human realm as well because Jesus rules over man's heart. Now, you can't change your own heart, and you can't change someone else's heart. You're trying to disciple or lead to Jesus. But what this does mean is that as we faithfully teach what is authoritative, which is God's word, God uses that to bring forth a harvest of salvation and growth in the life of his people. One of the places I love is stated actually in the Old Testament, it's just beautiful the continuity that exists between all of God's word, old and new, is in Isaiah 55, where there's a description here of how God's word, which is authoritative, always produces fruit. It always produces what it's supposed to. It never returns to him void. Here's what Isaiah says on God's behalf here. For as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And the beautiful thing in the Old Testament is that it actually calls us oracles of God. In a sense, you are the mouthpieces of God when you're faithful deliverers of his word and bring his truth to bear on the world around us. And God says, my word will not return to me void. Discipleship is a supernatural work. You cannot do it on your own. And Christ has all authority. So you have authority if Christ is in you. Second thing that we see 
that bookends the Great Commission is Jesus' promise to be with you. Christ is always with you. And in a supernatural way, he is with you. In verse 20, he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. One of the interesting things that I only noted when I was studying this passage is that Matthew gives Jesus in chapter 1 a title that he bookends here at the very end in Matthew chapter 28. What was Jesus' name that he was given back in chapter 1? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Once again, here Jesus is promising, I am with you. But the meaning and significance of it here is even clearer now that he is going away. Because he was never going to be with us forever physically, at least not on this side of eternity, and yet he is with us in even a more intimate sense now. One of the more challenging and perplexing things he says to his disciples in John 16, 7 is this, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. And elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as his spirit. So when he goes, he is sending his spirit to live inside of you. That's why he can say, I will be with you always to the end of the age, and the helper will come and be with you. See, Christ is with you through his spirit that now indwells you in power. And here's just a short list, not comprehensive, of the implications of that for you today. Just listen and soak this reality in for you this morning. That Christ is always with you means he is always there to help you. John 14, 26. It means he's always there to guide you. John 16, 13 to 15. It means he is always there to help you know and understand him. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 11. It means he's always there to provide wisdom for you. Ephesians 1, 17 to 20. It means he's always there to teach and to remind you of the things that he's taught you. John 14, 26. It means he's always there to convict you and to correct you when you stray. John 16, 7 to 8. It means he's always there to provide power for you in your witness when you're faithfully sharing your faith with others. Acts chapter 1, 8. It means he's always there to provide power in your service to others. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 to 11. It means he's always there to remind you of your true identity in Christ. The Spirit of God, Jesus' Spirit, there to remind you, you are beloved by him. You are his child. The Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, inside of you. He's always there to remind you of that. And it means he's always there to help you pray, even when you don't know how. Romans chapter 8, 26 to 27. So both being... And making disciples is a supernatural work of God. It requires both faith on your part, but God provides the power through his authority and presence in your life. Perhaps the Apostle Paul captures this tension the best in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, when he talks about both the necessity of faith and God's power in discipleship. Here's how he puts it. Therefore, my beloved... As you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. You, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Being and making disciples 
are both processes in which it requires faith and fortitude and intentionality and effort on your part, as well as the supernatural power of God, if there's to be any true fruit in our lives and in our ministries. So I want to get real practical as we close, just for the next minute. If the journey of discipleship involves these three phases, come and see, respond to me, and then go and tell. I want to focus on that last piece of go and tell for just a moment. Jesus says here to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. There, there are a couple of alls here that can be pretty intimidating, even paralyzing, I would imagine, for some Christians as they read these words. Here's the thing. The 11 disciples didn't fulfill either of those in their entirety. They didn't reach all of the nations. That's the ultimate goal. That wasn't the immediate goal for them as individual disciples of Christ. That's the goal of the church throughout history, not of every individual Christian. Also, similarly with when he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, it's unlikely you are going to be able to teach every word of the Bible with equal emphasis, even to the people that are in closest proximity in your life. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, let me leave you and encourage you with starting small here this morning. First, could you commit one time a week to taking what you learn from a Sunday morning, from your personal devotional, from a tribe, and sharing that with someone else in your life? A friend, family member, somebody else from this church to encourage them with the truth of God's word. Go and tell. If God is revealing something of himself to you, can you commit to finding one person to go and tell in our church family? Now, some of you may do that very naturally. Some of you may have done that three or four times by the time you get home from church today in terms of sharing with your fellow believers, with brothers and sisters in Christ, or in a tribe context this week. There are set places where you can do that. So for you, my challenge is this. Keep doing that. Commit to that. But can you commit to one time a week where you tell a non-Christian in your life about what God is doing in your life? or what he's revealed to you. Where we want to get ultimately is to see all of life as you are going as opportunities to make disciples. But making this commitment to go and tell one time a week will help to build that mindset because you're gonna start to look for those opportunities in ways that some of you may never have before. So can you commit to that? Is that something that we can commit to? And then check in with each other on that. Hold each other accountable to that in your tribe, in your family, but not in a guilt way. If you've not done it, encourage one another. Encourage each other to be disciples on mission to make disciples for the glory of God and for the joy of man. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and that you first loved us, we love because you first loved us, that you first revealed yourself to us. What a privilege it is for those here this morning who are known by you, who are saved by you, to be called children of the Most High God and to have the privilege of following you as disciples. Help us not, help me not to take that for granted. 
And Father, I pray, too, that you would help to be faithful practitioners of the Great Commission. Not from a place of obligation, but from a place of joy that would well up, well up from within as we meditate here in a moment on your love for us as seen in the cross, the death and resurrection of your son for our sins. So Lord, I pray that we as Terra Nova Church and as individuals before you would revel in the privilege it is to be disciples and in the privilege it is to make disciples. Help us to do this by your power and for your name's sake. Amen.